Um, welcome to our very first uh, theology lab of the year. This is like Christmas for me. I am so excited every time we start a new series. Let me say a few words. I'm going to kind of run through things quickly because I know we want to jump into the discussion. If you are new to Theology Lab, this is a place where we invite uh, guests and panelists that we want to learn from. They're gifted scholars, pastors, and thought leaders. And they're also people who have just like shown that they are a model of this kind of faithfulness in their lives and that we want to learn from them. Um, and then more than that, like we, we love these people, we love these guests, uh, but we also want to be learning within community. So at the end of our session tonight, you'll have a chance to go into breakout discussion groups and uh, to kind of process this with other people, because that's really where the change and transformation begins to happen. Okay, this year's topic is God and money. Why this topic? Uh, this is something I said to one of our communities earlier this morning. It has to do with the relational importance of this. Money can put a kind of strain on our individual relationships, on our relationships with God, right? And Jesus said, you, you cannot serve God and money. That seems to be very clear. And yet at the same time, the created world is a gift and a thing for us to use, to love God. Jesus looks at the woman that just has two coins and she takes all that she has and she hands it over to God. And Jesus says, there is faith. So it's complicated. And, and Theology Lab is the kind of space that we want to have to bring people into where we can talk about hard things and try to learn from one another and learn together. All right, so uh, on to conversation. Everybody who is in this room tonight should have signed off on a conversation covenant. This is way more than just a set of rules for having good dialogue. This is actually like our, our secret, non-secret agenda is actually to, to foster a certain kind of posture, uh, a kind of way of being church today. And this conversation covenant helps to get at that. It's like a kind of community that says, we're just not gonna like separate having convictions with compassion, and curiosity and, gen and generosity. Um, and I think the Conversation Covenant helps us to do that. It helps us to become kind of boundary-breaking communities or try to seek to be boundary-breaking com Christian communities. Um, we have a couple just amazing guests with us tonight. Let me introduce them. Um, but actually, before I do that, here's the order of the events for tonight. First thing is that we're going to do, uh, we'll do introductions, and then we're going to have a, a moderated discussion here. Pastor Megan will lead us into that with our guests. That'll last about 25 or 30 minutes. During that time, send me questions for our, the next part of the evening. We'll have a Q&A with these guests. Send them to me as a private message. You'll see my name is listed there, Scott Rice. I'll, uh, I'll take your questions, sort them out, pass them over to Megan, and then we'll use our last 15, 20 minutes for a Q&A. And then after that, we'll say bye to our guests and go into breakout discussion groups. Okay, let me introduce our first uh, guest tonight. We have Dr. Professor Ruth Padilla DeVorce, who is the Professor of World Christianity at Western Theological Seminary. She has served in educational settings and in ministry in many different places for a long time. These are just a couple of the groups that she's worked with, the Latin American Theological Fellowship, World Vision International, International, the International Justice Mission, and she was also the president of the Centro de Estudios Interdisciplinarios that serves the church throughout Latin America. Uh, if you just got to even to watch part of the YouTube video uh, in preparation for the session, you will just know how uh, much of a versatile and powerful speaker that pr Professor uh, Padilla de Borst is. So uh, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Let me uh, move on here to our second guest, uh, Dr. Al Tizan. 
Uh, Dr. Tazan has been doing ministry and working in the church for a long time, actually within the denomination that High Rock belongs to, uh, which is the Evangelical Covenant Church. He was formerly the executive minister for Serve Globally. That's the international ministries part of the Evangelical Covenant Church. Uh, he was also at one point the co-president of Christians for Social Action, which is a group that we'll be returning to later this year. Uh, he is an affiliate associate professor of global leadership and mission at North Park University and currently is the lead pastor at Grace Fellowship Community Church in San Francisco. Dr. Dazan, we are uh, so glad that you are here with us. It's great to be with you. Um, I'm looking at the faces here, seeing some familiar ones. Hello, friends. And I'm seeing some new ones as well. And uh, it's great that um, that you've all come out here instead of watching Sunday Night Football to, um, mm -hmm. to talk about this uh, really, really crucial subject. So great to be with you. Uh, we are so glad that both of you are with us tonight. Let me give a quick plug. This will come up tonight. This really, like, uh, Pastor Megan and I looked at this book and we were like, we're like, we, we, we uh, Dr. Zahn would be a great guest here to get us started. Uh, Dr. DeBorst uh, would just be a phenomenal guest to bring in to be in conversation about this topic. So we're excited just to jump into things tonight. Let me pass things over to uh, my supervisor and colleague in all things Theology Lab. Pastor Megan DeYoung, who will moderate tonight's discussion. I pass things over to you now. All right, I am excited to jump into this. Thank you, Scott. Uh, thank you, Ruth and Al for being with us. Um, so, you know, this theology lab really is trying to help us think about how our relationship to God plays into how we live, right? Discipleship. Um, and so personally, I wonder for each of you, why does money, uh, God, money, discipleship, why does this topic matter to you personally? Ruth, can you- Ruth, would you like me to begin? Let's see. There you go. Oh, there you go. I, okay. I am muted. You go, Al. You go first. You're the author <laughs> of the book that we're talking about. So you go first and yeah. I'll, I'll follow you. Yeah, that's- Thanks. I, I um, you know, one one of the reasons that uh, that I wrote this book was for me, and so let me just answer that question personally first before I get into anything um, deeper than that. I I need this book. I need to wrestle with these things because I am as much um, a um, I'm as much prone to idol worship as anyone. And uh, money has that power. It has that power to uh, to consume us and to be the thing that determines how we live, what standard we live by, where we uh, uh, what what we do, career choices. It just has everything to do with with life, and so it can become something that uh, is is higher than it ought to be in our in our lives as, as, uh, as followers of Jesus. So personally, because of my own struggles as one who is, uh, who, who does long to uh, be faithful to Jesus, um, to, uh, to keep myself accountable. And so really it's a, it's a, it's a personal, um, it's a personal book for me. Mm -hmm. um, but beyond that, I, I believe that the mission of the church uh, the integrity of it 
depends on how we as a church deal with the isms. Um, and, you know, there, there are some really good resources coming out uh, these days on how to address racism. And I'm, I'm so glad. Uh, but there, there is a, a, an, a, an evil twin of racism mm-hmm. called classism. And they go together, and that's why they're twins. They, they, there is often um, the the poor and those who are ethnically marginalized and and oppressed. Th- those are so related that to deal with racism without classism uh, is is not, is to deal um, inadequately with the, and vice versa. And so, as a missiologist, not just as a person who who needs to keep myself accountable to to um, to the to the grips or the power of of, uh, of money uh, and wealth, but also as a missiologist to say, hey, if we are going to be uh, effective and faithful to our mission and bearing witness to Jesus, then we need to get a hold of this thing called classism. We need to identify it, uh, confront it, and dismantle it. So. Those are just some some reasons why I wrote this book and why this is such an important issue for me. Yeah, thank you. I mean, as we continue, I'm gonna just paying attention to, yeah, like how did you even identify in your own story, in your own self, that this was something, right? Um, yeah. The way that class and race come together. And we're gonna talk about that later on in the series too. Yeah. But um, I think just that for many folks, even the notion of the isms being what they are, uh, more than personal sin that we all participate in, it can be sort of a new thing too. Um, so just, I don't know, like how did you even get to that place of saying like, I have to address this in myself? Um, just a, yeah, well, a couple words to that. Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, it, it's it's personal because you know, as a, as someone who has done uh, cross cultural work, mission work, um, almost immediately you can you can um, you can find that that gap between uh, the haves and the have nots. And as as a missionary coming from the West, I, I was one of the haves, right? And um, and that that gap bothered me for it, it, it. I thought maybe I'll get over it, but that gap got wider and wider and wider. As I as I stayed uh, in my homeland of the Philippines, where where I served, um, I, I was like, "Whoa, this is this is big, this gap. We have to address it. We can't just ignore it." Um, there there's something about this gap between the rich and the poor, especially when it comes to um, gospel relationships and mission partnerships, that. Um, that has to be addressed. We can't just say, "Oh well, that's just the way it is," and so let's let's keep keep doing what we're doing. That has to be addressed. And um, so, in my own uh, missional and pastoral work, I've seen um, the 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 crucial um, issue of addressing this gap between wealth and poverty. Thank you, thank you, Ruth. You know, the same question to you personally, uh, why does this topic matter? Yeah, I mean, I'm totally with with Al and that this is something each and every one of us has to tackle. But I think part of the reason why we have to tackle it is because for some reason, um, it is money 
is is so susceptible of becoming our God. Mm. And throughout scripture, the entire scripture, we see the competition of stuff, of things versus and the and the yearning for things and the accumulation of things and the and everything that money represents as the strongest competitor with our loyalty to God um, from from the very beginning. Uh, you, you can't read scripture and not become aware of how money and God are in competition for our loyalty. Um, the voice of the prophets talking about accumulation, about about inequality as as Al was talking about what he saw in the Philippines and what we experience even in this country and wherever you are this inequality this gap and 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 um and then Jesus himself of all the things he could have presented as the biggest competitor to his lordship it was mammon mm. it wasn't it wasn't sex it wasn't um it wasn't anything else it was money. Uh, so so there's an alert there. There's a there's a you know a flashing red light just saying, hey, money is uh the a strong competitor, and you've got to be aware of its power, of its lure, of its enticements, of all that's wrapped into our our life investment in having, in accumulating, in securing, in protecting, and 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 how that just kind of sidetracks us to what it means to live as God's people in God's world. So to me, it's just essential. It's just at the heart of the gospel, the confrontation with the power of money. How have you noticed that like crop up in your own life, right? Like, or in your discipleship journey, um, have there been seasons or th ways that you have noticed that, you know, sort of subtly creeping in instead of Jesus? Yeah. I mean, I think there's just, it's a constant, it's a constant lure. I mean, it's powerful and, and it, and it can be very disguised. Like we need security. We need to guarantee that we're okay, that our kids are okay, that our, you know, if some of us now are grandparents, that we, so we got to secure things we got, and that's okay. And we have to question to what extent we have to um, have that as such a high priority compared to our loyalty to the values of God's reign, where God wants abundant life for all and where then we're troubled we must be troubled by the inequities in the world and our part, our complicity in those inequities. Um, so yes, uh, for, for my husband and me, it's meant having to be very honest with, hey, we are so extremely privileged to have solid jobs with solid incomes, with guaranteed insurance, with healthcare, with pensions with, you know, we own a property. I mean, we are extremely wealthy, even if compared to, oh, we're not Bezos, we're not, you know, but we are part 
we are wealthy. Every single person on this call, access to Zoom today, access to the technology, discretionary time to sit on a conversation. We are wealthy and we need to name it and then say, okay, so what steps do we need to take to to really be followers of Jesus in spite of, in the midst of, and even with our wealth? And so that's been a constant question. What does it mean to practice Jubilee as a family? Mm. Um, what does it mean to release what we've had, to give away, to release to others um, some of our some of our income, some of our properties, some of our wealth? How do we practice that? I mean, those are questions, very, very daily questions um, in our in our in our life. Yeah. I'm- I'm glad we are recording this because I want to like come back and write all those questions down because I think they're all things that, you know, I personally want to keep wrestling with, but that I think this, this group that's gathered, we got to keep wrestling with this y'all. Al, do you have a response to any of this? I see you like. I do. I do. (laughs) Maybe too many, but I'm so glad that we're talking about this in the context of discipleship because our economic life has everything to do with our discipleship. Um, I I think as you know as I as I think back on my own spiritual formation, I I would say that uh, money and maybe a few other um, areas in my life were not part of the discipleship journey. You know that the, the discipleship journey seemed to be more um, cerebral or um, um, intellectual or, or doctrinal. Like this is what you have to believe to be a, a Christian. And uh, I, I don't want to. We need to. We need to do that. But, but discipleship to be like Jesus, to follow Jesus, um, that that requires looking at um, areas in our lives that guide us or determine our our way, and to say, how does the good news of God's reign, God's kingdom, uh, um, informative, um, guiding? Uh, in in these areas, and so that dichotomy that we often see in our churches of spiritual things and um, non spiritual or or real things, um, let's 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 you know put those on parallel tracks. And the discipleship part is the spiritual part, and then the the other track is what? What is that? Is Jesus not Lord in those tracks? You know, so so I it's it's so. Um, uh, important that we're discussing this in the context of discipleship because it is a discipleship issue. How we understand uh, the the blessings of God uh, that that we that we have. I mean, what what how, what does it mean to be a good steward of the blessings of the of the material wealth that God has? That God has given us, or that our circumstances have given us, whatever whatever reason that we have so much, and and millions of people have so little, whatever reason it was, it ha- it, it it is that that we have that gap. Um, as a follower of Jesus, how can I steward what's what I have uh, for uh, in accordance with the purposes of God? I think that is a discipleship. No, I don't think that is a discipleship question. Yes. So why it is, why do you think it is that folks don't engage this as a matter of financial discipleship, right? As, as y'all have 
worked with many folks over the years as uh, Al is preparing your book. Um, why is it that people stay away from this? And I don't think it's just as simple as that there are these two tracks and we keep spiritual and not spiritual things as if there were such a thing separate, right? But um, what what has surprised you as you've started to engage with people and and they can be honest about why they keep these things separate? Ruth, do you have a response at all first? Well, I wouldn't dismiss too easily the fact that we do... Um, too often, faith is seen as a matter of intellectual assent, mm. and we are lacking the ethical expressions of, of, of that assent. If Jesus is Lord and nobody else is, then what does it mean? How does it look? How does it taste? How does it smell to affirm Jesus' Lordship over and against the lordship of money because 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 on the one hand we can say oh yeah we go to church and we do our stuff and we you know we talk our christianese but then the rest of our time most of our time is dedicated to acquiring to accumulating to protecting to securing um and our imagination just gets co-opted. It gets it gets absorbed. It gets concentrated on those things, and then it's like, well, so what? Is Jesus just Lord of my kind of my spiritual realm, or does 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 that filter through every last decision? What I spend on, how I make money, who I share with, who I don't share with, and and then the structural dimensions. How do we advocate for policies that guarantee a more equal distribution of wealth? I mean, it's not just my personal dimension; it's also the structural. And and I think we 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 so particularly evangelical Christians have fear and shy away from the structural. And that's part of the reality of the picture. And it's and it's a picture that is um, confronted by the good news of God's intent for full life for all people, for the whole of creation. And so anything that conspires against that whole life is a problem and we have to engage with it. We're, we're not off the hook just because um, I'm not a policymaker in in the in the structure of Congress or whatever. Um, so so we I, I feel like there's there's the personal dimension and there's the structural and we have to as a community. It's not just me individually. It's the church as the body of Christ has to engage with these things. And as Al was saying, it's totally a matter of discipleship. I want, I want to add to that. Um, it's so good, Ruth. I, I, I want to add the the relationship between the personal and the structural. Because, mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a reason personally why we react to um, uh, challenges of, of our economic um, lifestyle. There's a reason for that. There's a reason why we think that it's none of anybody's business but mine mm. uh, regarding my money. And the reason is structural. The reason is mm. uh, the cultural narrative uh, mm -hmm. that, that we, have, um, we have lived into, we have practiced, lived into, have been taught ever since we were little. Um, and, um, and, you know, 
we have to necessarily be uh, critical. And this is where I get in trouble by so many, so many of my, my fellow uh, uh, American Christians is we have to be critical of capitalism as an ideology and as a practice, because at the core of capitalism is, um, is a definition of the good life that is based on the promises of mammoth. And that in order to uh, get to the top of the heap, which is the goal in a capitalist system, um, in order to get there, um, you're you're going to have your, your your loyalty, your full on loyalty is required, demanded, um, and and so I'm going to get there. I'm going to get to the top. Uh, you know, I might step on a few heads to get there. It's okay because it's just business. You know, I mean, these are some of the things we say, right? Like, hey, it's just business. Um, we're you know, it it we, we justify. Uh, things that would not be acceptable in God's economy because of a system that that we live in. Now, um, you know, I, I can't think of a, I, there's not like a perfect economic system out there where I can say, let's get rid of capitalism and let's do this. Let's do this instead. Let's do this particular economic system. I think all syst economic systems are flawed, but the flaw of, of what we in the West have have lived in in terms of our economic system is that somehow uh, in in the famous line of um, Wall Street, the uh, I forget his name in the in the movie now, but Michael Douglas, the, where he says, "Greed is good." <laughs> Greed is good. Gordon Gecko, thank you, uh, John. Um, you know that's that is the the capitalist mantra. And and that um, you know th those are again cultural narratives structures that inform how we personally uh, view our money. It's none of your business. It's my money, and so I'm going to get to do with it what I will. And so you talk about discipleship or talking about your money in a in a group, a small group setting, for example. It's like hey 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 no that's that's off limits. So. Uh, that's that would be my response to to that question is that that there is truly a personal and structural dimension and they're related very much. And I think I, I hear you both um, bringing out some things about how honesty can sort of serve as an antidote to um, getting trapped right in a narrative that we would like to believe that we uh, somehow exist on our own little bubble that we are not shaped at all by anything that's around us, right? But uh, Ruth, I heard you just naming even um, the pull that sometimes being in a family unit can have. We are so like that that line between caring for our family, which is a biblical mandate <laughs> and caring for our family at the expense of, or to an extent that it leads to the oppression of someone else, right? That's a fine line that often we have to be honest in order to untangle and perhaps honest daily. Al, I heard you saying we have to be honest about the sort of society, culture, uh, systems that we participate in with, you know, with or without our consent. Um, we, I think to say, folks, um, we have to be honest about where we're starting from and then to be able to step forward to where we would like to be going. Um, and, and so I just, I want to encourage all of you that I, um, 
this is this is tricky, right? Because as Al said, we don't typically talk about this stuff with other people. Um, so if you feel yourself feeling a type of way, take a big breath. <laughs> we love you. And we're here to be together in this work. Mm. Um, so, you know, you spoke, Al, a little bit about um, the system that we currently in the United States, uh, as well as like a lot of the globe participate in, um, that there are different, but even within like the United States, there are different approaches to wealth and money. Uh, the two of you sort of named Named your own questions that you ask, your own predispositions towards um, what a Christian approach towards money could look like. Um, could you speak a little bit to some perspectives that fall within Christendom that differ from your own? Um, are there things that you can appreciate about what they bring to the table that weighs things that you find maybe lacking in those approaches? Um, just knowing that we at High Rock are a diverse community of people who mm. have different approaches to what the best use of money is uh, towards like the Christian life. So can you speak to any of that? Uh, oh yeah, Ruth, you have something I'm, I'm formulating. Well, I just, I mean, most of the first thing that comes to mind with this question is, um, the very strong justifications to, um, to, bring together these things that to me cannot be brought together. And that is loyalty to money and loyalty to Jesus Christ. And that is called the prosperity gospel and all that it teaches and saying, yes, God's favor is expressed in material blessing. And it looks like a bigger house and a, and a better car and, and, uh, and this, and this, and this, and this, and I can put a, a kind of a religious stamp of approval to uh, the, 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 the never ending yearning for more um, and, and justify it theologically. And to me, there's, there's just a radical, uh, deep problem with with that perspective i i cannot echo with it i can see the fact that god does want it is god's intent that all people have full life and that full life requires some basic the covering of some basic needs um Everybody needs enough food, enough shelter, enough security to not be um, just constantly ravaged by violence and war and, and climate change. Yes, people, there are basic necessities. And, and part of God's intent for the whole of creation is that people be able to cover those bare necessities. But the problem is our society and global capitalism cannot differentiate between needs and wants and wants are nourished and 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 um created they are created we need this we need this we need this as if we really needed it we don't <laughs> um i i love the work of of this old writer called schumacher he his little book called small is beautiful we need to recognize that there is such a thing as enough our society never ag would not agree with that there's never enough you always need more and more is always better and actually 
even sociologists, secular sociologists will say, you know what? People are not any happier once they've covered their basic needs. Having more and more and more and more is no recipe for happiness, for satisfaction, for fulfillment, because this thirst is unquenchable. And so, and so this baptizing that thirst theologically with the with the prosperity gospel to me is just is just incompatible with the good news of a good God that wants full life for all people. Yeah, Ruth, I you know, I think that the word prosperity uh needs to be reclaimed. Mm. You know, I think in the hands of prosperity gospel preachers, mm-hmm. etc. Mm-hmm. They've ruined the word for me. And mm-hmm. yet uh when yeah. I uh mm-hmm. when I uh read my Bible, um I, I see that God does want us to prosper in the sense that God desires that we flourish, that yep. we, we flourish Full as life. human beings. Mm-hmm. Full life. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I think there needs to be some reclaiming. It 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 may be irredeemable, like word evangelical, for example. But <laughs> but if um if if prosperity uh, is going to be you know biblically rooted, um, mm-hmm. we we need to affirm that that God does desire us to flourish to the fullest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. that that um is so different, you know, from say a, a picture of say the what we what we've called the american dream right when there when you when we imagine the american dream with with that that uh you know that house and the picket fence and the two and a half children and the six car garage and the uh the you know those those sorts of things that that is not that is not the biblical definition of prosperity and so we we have to we have to just rethink and 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 people again people who lived in market based economies, it's it's just a major overhaul of of thinking. This is not just a a a one day reorientation of things. This is a this is a lifestyle, a lifetime of discipling that we ourselves need to be on, and what we as leaders need to be helping um, others to be on. Um, so, you know, I, I do want to acknowledge not just the the biblical uh, value of 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 a a, theolo- a genuine biblical theology of prosperity, but also uh, uh, acknowledging the the range of ways in which people uh, approach wealth and poverty. I I want to acknowledge that, um, but I, I want to say that the 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 question for followers of Jesus is the same wherever we are on that uh, spectrum of of approaches to wealth and poverty. The question for me is stewardship. Lord, um, it within whatever approach I have adopted in my in my life as uh, whatever approach of savings and and spending and giving, whatever approach I have chosen, I want that choice to be driven by, informed by, defined by. A, a a kingdom perspective on stewardship that is so key and i think we've uh, as a church generally speaking uh we've lost the power of stu- the of of stewardship you know we we've kind of relegated it and reduced it to um hey let's do a capital campaign to add a educational wing to our church i mean that's <laughs> stewardship right 
um, that there, it's so much bigger than it's 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 how do we um, use manage um, uh, grow what God has given us in order to accomplish or re- reflect at least reflect the the values of God in the world. How how do we use these resources at our disposal uh, to uh, participate with God in um, in the flourishing of humankind and and creation? You know, those that's a, that's a stewardship question, and it doesn't matter what approach or what what the way in which we handle our 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 money so much as that should be our question. Um, just, I hope that makes sense. Yeah, I think the thing that can often be overwhelming for folks in this conversation is like, where do I start, right? Because yes, I can agree with you. And I'm I'm also caught in the culture wars about systems and which one's best and which one's worst. And it's all being politicized. And there's shame, right? Um, when you're wondering, have I hit that enough marker already? And is it bad that I, that I want this other thing or that I want this kind of security for my family? Am I... Am I awful? Am I irredeemable? Right. Because um, no matter what we think about like anybody else, you know, as much as we would like to judge other people, cause it's easier when we get into these honest conversations, often we're going to God and saying, am I irredeemable? Is the way that I have stewarded the money that I have been given whatever reason, like, have I done enough with it? Um, and so I think like for those folks who are showing up today, and you know, feeling overwhelmed. Is there a word of of grace? Is there a word of even just one thing that they might be able to adopt um, towards just taking a step towards this towards God's kingdom? Is there something that you two could offer them? Um, yeah. So when my kids were little, and I would give them allowances, um, a practice uh, we developed was there would be, they would have, um, say they got a dollar a week or something. I mean, when they were really little. Um, But what I wanted to instill in them was the recognition that having something didn't mean it was all for them and all for them to use. So they would have a third of it would be for their, to do whatever, a third of it they would save and a third of it they would start accumulating in order to share. And it was a very simple practice, but I was so grateful when my grade school kids raised money when we lived in El Salvador. They 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 made little sticker cards and sold them. They shouldn't have even been doing this, but they sold them at school. They didn't even tell us they were doing this, but they did it in order to save up coins and more coins and more coins. And they put it all in a bottle to build, to give enough money to a lady we knew who needed a new tin roof for her shack in El Salvador. And so what I saw was that this little seed of, you know what, what you receive isn't just yours and it's not just for now and it's not just for you to spend. Think about it. So so Al's point about stewardship and maybe that was just with a dollar and maybe that was just a grade school kid. But I think that's that's something to consider 
in our family budgeting, how are we, how do we, do we budget for others? Or do we just kind of say, oh, we have it, we'll spend it on ourselves. Um, Little things, um, doing a kind of an inventory. I mean, I know plenty of families never really budget. Just if we have it, we spend it. Uh, But what about maybe thinking about how to budget so that there's a cushion, intentional cushion for purposes outside of my own supposed needs? Yeah. I mean, speaking of discipleship, it begins with our kids. It begins with our family, doesn't it? Uh, uh, What came to mind with your question, Megan, was um, the book that ruined me forever to live, uh, uh, you know, the the American dream. And that was uh, the book written by my my late mentor, Ronald J. Sider, um, in his book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. Um, it's still a relevant book. The sixth and final edition before he died uh, came out about a year, I believe, or a year or two before he died. And it's still a relevant book. I recommend it highly, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. A few years after its first uh, publication, first edition, uh, a, a disgruntled um, theologian um, retorted with a book of his own called um, Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators <laughs> uh, in order to counter wow. uh, what Ron was saying in his book. And um, of course, I hated the book. Um, and I thought that he was not fair uh, to um, w- with with his accusations and charges uh, with uh, to against Ron. Um, but I did it did cause me to to think about guilt. We don't want to be guilt manipulators in all of this. Um, th- this that's not that's not the the goal of of uh, writing a book like Christ Among the Classes. Even though, um, you know, writing it, I had to struggle with with uh, with. Hey, do I have too much? Um, uh, it's it's not about feeling guilty. Again, I think if we if we can formulate a question for us related to stewardship. Um, we can uh, go about um, reorienting and rethinking uh, how we spend, how we save, how we give. And um, this, the book that I wrote, uh, you know, the first half of it is um, painting a portrait of Christ among the classes. How did Jesus interact with the rich and the poor of his day? And the second half is the church among the classes. How can we better reflect, you know, as we look into the mirror of, of this portrait painted in section one, how can we better reflect Christ among the classes so as to become the church among the classes? And I um, I propose in there six what I call life movements. And um, I, I do make the point that it is ultimately one single movement toward a justice-oriented life. But... So one of the values of cutting it up into six movements, life movements, is to make them sort of bite-sized. Because you know, when you say, "Hey, you gotta, you gotta uh, live justly," you know, and if it's that big, um, we often, I don't know, we often say, "Well, that's that's too big. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to make any changes at all." 
Um, but what if what if that call was cut up into six ways, like how to live simply, um, how to be more compassionate, um, how to understand our relationship with our things? Do we really ultimately own our things or from a Christian perspective, God owns those things. And if we really believe that, how would we handle, manage, um, take care of, share these things? So um, I, I'm not going to go through all six, but but if if that is of, uh, you know, if, if Megan, if you're talking about practical things, you know, how to how to align better with with the the values of the kingdom regarding wealth and poverty, you know, this book attempts to do that. And also in the back of the book uh, is the appendix. Um, it, it it's called Church Among the Classes: An Inventory, um, and so it it gives us it, it gives you a chance as you um, take the inventory, as you take the tests uh, and score. Uh, it gives you a chance to see where you might be on this journey toward uh, faithfulness in um, in all things wealth and poverty according to a kingdom perspective. So um, it's, it's I, you know, I really wanted it to be a, a practical discipleship book um, for, uh, for churches and small groups and individuals who really do long to be a friend of the poor. Um, actually call them, I call um, us, uh, the call to, to me is that we be a, um, an advocate friend of the poor and a prophet friend to the rich. Uh, the key word being a friend. We are a friend of both the rich and the poor, like Jesus was. Um, and uh, but he had different messages for for these two groups in in his day. And I think, you know, the more that we can reflect that in our own lives, and this book tries to help us do that, um, the better. Thank you both. Um, we are going to move now into taking some questions from our audience. Um, so we'll see how many we can get through here. Um, so to either of you, can you comment on the ethical relativism of our relationship to money, depending on extended family, neighbors, or our fellow church members? And so how then, if, if we assume that that is a thing that we experience, how do we guard against self-justifying box checking um, as we are doing sort of this honest inventory of our wealth? ethical relativism of our relationship to money regarding our peer relationships or family relationships? And is there a way to guard against self-justification in our box checking around this relationship to money? Hmm. You want to go, Al? Um, it's an integrity check, really. I, I don't, I mean, there's not, if, if anybody comes out with a uh, a standard, well, here here's what it looks like. You know, uh, and uh, and if you you know if you fall short of that picture, then you know you're you're done. Uh, if anybody comes out with something like that, um, I would not take it very seriously because it's it's a it's a it's an integrity thing with with each of us or with the church or with with our relationship with with our neighborhood. Um, it's a thing between you and God as well, um, and. Uh, I, I love the, the book that comes to mind immediately is Richard Foster's classic, The Freedom of Simplicity, where he talks a lot about this. And and I, I keyed in on the word freedom. And that book, what that book helped me to do was to not 
judge people based on a standard I put together for myself. You know, um, for for example, um, when I first uh, when we first moved to the Philippines as a community development missionaries, um, there were there were uh, some people that I I met fellow missionaries um, with with a mission group that uh, was committed to sending their uh, missionaries to live in the um, squatter communities in which um, where where they served and lived. And um, I, um, you know, I, I thought I was going in there, just going to the Philippines was enough for me to, to be um, incarnational. And then I saw these missionaries doing that. And I went, wow, Janice, my wife, Janice, let's, let's do that too. Let's go in there. And we had this debate about uh, whether that was going, whether that was the best thing for us with our five-year-old and our one-year-old. And we were, we, we debated and we, we decided, um, to live two blocks from these corner <laughs> community that that we um, uh, we're working in um, because we decided that we needed running water, so we found a place that had running water and electricity. Um, it was humble, but it was still better than many of the people that we worked with. Um, so, and then and then I looked at. On the other side, all these missionaries who were living in gated communities and had these these houses that were bigger than even the 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 richest in the Philippines I was like, wow, huh? We're better than they are. I mean, you know, it was this sort of comparing, and I, I just realized uh, eventually that that was not helpful. That Janice and I, my wife and I, had to decide together with integrity and honesty before God and one another, how we were going to live our lives consistent with our call. And we ended up doing what we did. And that's, that's oh, we're not mm. going to judge those who did better, uh, I mean, who lived in bigger houses, and we're not going to feel like we're inadequate be, if I compared myself to those who lived in the squatter community. So how can we live a judge-free life of integrity, with you know related to wealth and poverty is is my uh is what i want to do and what i would want to teach others to do and and i would say that that integrity that that what is undeniable to me is that we all need to be in this journey um maybe maybe we start in different places maybe we end in different places but we cannot we are not off the hook in grappling with what it means to live ethically in relation to money and um for some of us in in my case um and my husband it's meant living in community choosing to not own exclusively for ourselves but to share our home to share a common pot to share to share life because we find that that's a countercultural witness of the fact that we can live with less and we can live by sharing and we can have a less significant carbon footprint so we're more responsible with the rest of creation so so but again, we're not saying, okay, everybody needs to live as we do in Costa Rica with Casa Adobe, our community. We're not saying we're the formula, we're the model. When people come to us to say, oh, let's, let's, no, we're like, no, we're an experiment. We're on the journey. And 
what I can guarantee is we all need to be on that journey. Um, and I'm not going to impose a formula or a, or a, a set um, bar that needs to be reached, but we all need to be walking. Amen. I appreciate that, that both of you were saying like, hey, this is something you do need to approach and how you like where you land at the end of that is going to look different depending on who you are and what the the needs are that you need to have met in order to have this full life, right? That you talked about earlier, that that full life that God offers, it doesn't look the same um, for everyone in certain ways. Um, we have about four minutes. So we are going to do what Scott likes to call sort of like a speed round, which means um, you're going to try to answer these as quickly as possible, which is hard because <laughs> um, we've got some big questions here. Do you think money All is right. a seductive idol for non-Western people, i.e. is this a more salient struggle for Western Christians, given our cultural context that finds so much security and identity in material possession? Mammon is no respecter of persons. Um, I've, I've, I've worked in, um, in really some very, very impoverished areas, and uh, the, the desire to be rich is there. Um, <laughs> And um, so the, it's no respecter of persons, but my but the message of or or the the practical uh, advice that that I uh, often share with these groups will be different. So it's there, but the the message is different. I would say though there tends to be a much more communal focus in the imaginary of people in many third world countries or majority world where um my stuff is not just my own I owe I I own it for the sake of my people I share it with my people I I take care of my people and my people might be a tighter circle or a larger circle but but I would say that there is a overall and of course this is a generalization but a tendency to much more communal imaginary in much mm. of the majority world that would really benefit this country and this individualistic mm. society that imagines that everybody has to own to be somebody. Mm -hmm. uh, that sets up this next uh, comment and question. You both criticized capitalism, but it seems that this misses the issue. Capitalism is a system that pits human greed against human sloth in order to mitigate the dominance of either. The problems you describe are not due to capitalism, but materialism, which settles the, drivel, the drive for money and stuff rather than be greedy for full life that includes spirituality, relationships, leisure, generosity. Even Ruth's wonderful example of her kids was them using capitalism, buying and selling, as they were defeating materialism. Can you comment on this? <laughs> In a speed, in a speed kind of way. Uh, uh, fast I mean, kind of way. I'll, I'll give you a little bit of an extension here. <laughs> no, I, I, it, that's an inevitable question um, because I, I did make a blanket statement about capitalism, um, and it's much more nuanced than that. It's much more complex. Um, for example, if you just put the word "restricted capitalism" as opposed to "unrestricted capitalism." Um, I, I can get on, on board with that, uh, depending on the restrictions that we place on it. Um, so it, but I, I was, I, what I was focusing on was the, was the core of it, 
the core of it uh, is based on a on an eschaton, a a a a, a vision of the good life that is contrary. I mean, I just feel it's contrary to the vision of the good life in Christ, which is about sharing, which is about the, the distribution of God's resources. And yes, I understand that socialism, generally speaking, could breed a kind of laziness or, or you know, the government's going to take care of us. Um, but, um, you know, isn't it, isn't it God's... Um, desire that all enjoy the blessings of creation, of, of, of all the things that God wants to bestow on us. It makes it makes sense. Capitalism as a as a system at the core um, is is saying something different. It's saying um, no those who are the most industrious should get that should get more of that. And so it's it's a fundamental uh, struggle, I understand, and uh, we won't solve it uh, with any one book. I, in my book, in, in this book, I call myself uselessly, I call myself an eschatological socialist, <laughs> which means that I have a vision. Uh, there's, a, there's this vision of the kingdom. I don't think capitalism is going to be the 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 you know the heavenly eternal um, economic system that we're going to be living in. It's not. It's 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 going to be much more. I'm just I'm using these words because social. It's going to be more socialist because everyone is going to be enjoying the the blessings of God there, and so um, I look I look at that vision and I say let's reflect that in whatever system that we find ourselves in, um, whether that's in in a capitalist system or a socialist system or anything in between. Let's um, let's find that that way in which we can best reflect what I call eschatological socialism by sharing what we have, not believing, believing that we don't own these things. It's God's, um, it's God's stuff. <laughs> and, and we need to, uh, we need to be um, good stewards of these things. So I, I probably successfully skirted around the question about capitalism, but that's, that's, <laughs> that was, that's my response. So now it just comes. Yeah, go, go, go. Well, I guess I just want to also like give you a little that you said no economic system out there was going to be perfect, right? So to our listeners, right, we are using frameworks that currently exist as a descriptor. And also <laughs> all of these systems are imperfect and have absolutely been at the root, right? Because they're systems that humans have made. Mm -hmm. So if we're talking about human-made systems and and what expressions biblically for example do we have related to economics um obviously there's not like a definition of capitalism or socialism in scripture but there are um clear concerns in the from the very beginning and provision in god's law and the prophets and jesus and the early church that are indications of the fact that, yes, productivity, work, creative engagement is healthy, good, necessary. Take care of the garden, work, work is good. So it's not saying, oh, let's just, you know, the sloth bit. But there also is care for others. It is central to the good news is 
care, particularly for the most vulnerable. And there are provisions. I mean, you look at what the Jubilee meant, what, what it looked like to free people that had been enslaved by any re for any reason. It could have been um, a natural disaster. It could have been their illness. It could have been wh whatever. But provision is made so that nobody has too much and nobody has not enough. So I, I don't need to title that socialism or I don't need to put a modern label on that. What I do believe we need to be um, very aware of is the fact that God is concerned for the well-being of all people and that any level of accumulation that deprives others of opportunity to live a full life is problematic and we have to question it. And so, um, yeah, the debate about and the issue is unbridled capitalism. It's not necessarily that trade is bad or business is bad. I'm not never I would never say that um, that it, there's there's space for that. The problem is when it's just this unending in unlimited escalation of accumulation versus deprivation. That's a problem. Well, thank you guys for just getting in, going after these questions from our dear audience. Um, as Scott mentioned in the chat, y'all, there were, there was a wealth of questions, Scott, I saw what you did there, um, that came through that we did not have an opportunity to answer. And so know that we will be taking these things to help shape future sessions. Um, Scott is going to um, send us to breakout groups shortly, um, but I just wanted to note one thing for our participants. Um, this year we are trying to include suggestions of a way that you can practice some of what we have learned in our sessions, right? So that our discipleship is not just something that happens here and here, but it's something that changes the way that we live as well. Um, one of the themes that I heard coming up in what you were both naming um, was how sometimes our, and as our last uh, question asker asked, sometimes our materialism, sometimes our uh, lust for things that um, just like the accumulation of stuff, uh, the accumulation of more can replace our our devotion to God. Um, as you said, Ruth, to our, our acknowledging the Lordship of Jesus. And so um, the practice that we are going to put to you all this month um, is this practice of gratitude. So you'll see in your discussion guide that there are different ways that you might try practicing gratitude um, for what you do have in your life. Because as Ruth started off by naming, gosh, we all had access to internet for tonight, um, which that that is still like a remarkable thing that we can gather, um, that we all had the time to do that. So um, friends, uh, thank you, Al, Ruth, Scott, I will kick it back to you if there are any final words, but thank you both. Well, uh, friends, if you just join me really quick to thanks Al and Ruth, you just kind of like spirit fingers or just like <laughs> a little thing where you click and there's a hello, thank you. Uh, 
Friends, uh, thank you, Al uh, and Ruth. Thank you so much. You did a wonderful job. Thanks for, for joining us. Everyone else, I'm going to send you into breakout groups right now. Uh, there was a link that has your discussion questions. Just appoint one person to kind of point out the questions. You don't have to answer all of those. Just pick one or two that you think are really important and then get to that gratitude one. And then give me a second. I'm going to put you in your breakout groups. If there's only like two people there, hold on a second and I'll, I'll put you into another group. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you at our October session.